Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoyed the show. I have a great pleasure to talk today to Jacques Rupnik, who is the research professor at La Centre de la Recherche Internationale, Center for International Research at Sciences Po in Paris, and a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges, an expert of, of Central and Eastern Europe. He's the author of many books, including The Other Europe, 1989 as Political World Event, Democracy Europe and the New International System in the Age of Globalization, and recently also Geopolitica de la Democratisation, uh, Geopolitics of Democratization. And Professor Rupnik, among his many positions, uh, was an advisor to Czech President Václav Havel and uh, Czechoslovak President also, uh, and a member of the board of the Institute for Historical Justice and Reconciliation in Hague. Mm. Jacques Rupnik, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. In 1994, you co a book, L'Union Européenne, Overture à l'Est, European Union Opening to the East. Is EU after the war or during the war in Ukraine? Um, is, is this war an opening or closing to the East for European Union? Well, it is, it is both. It is certainly an opening in the sense of uh, this is a conflict on the eastern periphery of the EU. And the EU, through its support of Ukraine during the war, uh, is clearly, so to speak, uh, drawn Uh, eastwards into uh, uh, into so it it is an opening if you want also because the EU has during the conflict actually invited uh, uh, Ukraine to become a candidate member uh, of the EU so in that sense it's an opening it's also a closure because it is a closure vis-a-vis Russia uh, uh, you know f- f- the the whole post 89 period was Uh, a big debate or various attempts have been made about how to deal with post-Soviet Russia. And I'm not going to go through that history, but there were, this was clearly meant at first as an opening, then as a kind of uh, uh, coexistence, cohabitation, and now it's clearly a closure. So if you ask about opening and closure, I would say opening to Ukraine and closure to Russia. Speaking of which, uh, you, you mentioned that Ukraine has been granted a candidate status to European Union, also made an application to NATO last year. Neither of the memberships seems realistic before the war. Do you think they are realistic now? Well, literally speaking, if one takes the both institutions, no country at war can join the EU. (laughs) That's the the first prerequisite for joining the EU. You should be a country at peace. Uh, You should be a country that controls its territory. And you should be a country capable of implementing the common shared not just uh, requirements, but policies, uh, uh, institutions, et- economic uh, constraints, etc., etc. So if you take this proposition of membership, literally, I would say no. Similarly for NATO, uh, uh, clearly there is uh, 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 no way that a country at war will uh, uh, have a chance of becoming a member. It doesn't mean it cannot make the application and start the process, because that's a different thing. So I would say uh, not membership 
at war, but a process that can be started at war and that perhaps would not have been started in such a way uh, had there not been war. So it, it therefore means it would be a different kind of enlargement process, a very different kind, and a very perhaps a different kind of membership as well, because uh, such an enlargement to a country that will be recovering from war for a very long time, I mean, the reconstruction will be, you know, this, this is something I'm now thinking not just, this is not in terms of months, this is a question of years. So, um, yeah, it will, it will be uh, hopefully a Ukraine that could become gradually drawn to the EU, but also it would be uh, a very different kind of EU that will be capable of engaging uh, in, in a place like, uh, like Ukraine. This is exactly to the point I wanted to ask you. What, what sort of EU, especially in terms of kind of geopolitics, would be ready to incorporate Ukraine? It will have to be transformed from the Union that we, we, we know today. How do, you, how do you see this EU? Well, the EU, um, this is an interesting thing because one has to recall what the EU is about and how it came about. It came about as a project post-war, post-World War II, as a project based on the reconciliation essentially between France and Germany. And the idea was, we've, we've just had two wars in the first half of the 20th century. We cannot continue like that because this is a self-destruction of Europe. It means that two non-European powers, Russia and the United States, are running a divided Europe. No, Europe, to be an actor, cannot afford to continue this way. So Europe was built against geopolitics. We built peace through interdependence between our countries, economic, social, institutional, uh, legal, what have you. So the more interdependence, the less likelihood of conflict. That was the philosophy of the founding fathers. This has been a tremendous success story among us, among the members of the EU, but we are confronted in our neighborhoods, and I include Eastern neighborhood, but also Southern neighborhood, we are confronted with uh, threats, security threats. We are confronted with phenomena which can be destabilizing for the EU itself. And suddenly we have this, the war in Ukraine has confronted the EU with something it has been sort of dithering about, but clearly that power and, and including uh, uh, military power matters, and that therefore EU has to think geopolitically. And to uh, uh, to cut a very long story short, thinking geopolitically means, for instance, saying that UK, Ukraine can become a candidate member to the EU, while this was not on the cards before, and while this would not be normally on the cards if you, uh, uh, if you consider Ukraine is at war. It also means changing the thinking about what the EU is for, both from some of the founding members and from some of the more recent members. Um, I just mentioned that the EU was created against geopolitics. Well, yeah, the idea was in Germany, that was a word was taboo. It was built on the whole, we don't want war anymore. We will, and you had in the German constitution, the ban on force projection outside Germany. 
Okay, France was always thinking in terms of power politics, like Britain, let's say, former uh, uh, empires, etc. But that was not part of the EU, strictly speaking. Only in more recent years, France has developed the idea that there should be an EU as a strategic actor, including in its security and military component. That idea was not at all appealing to countries of East Central Europe, which had, I, I summarize crudely and perhaps slightly unfairly, but not completely, their view was, so to speak, for security, there is only one institution that matters and that has proved itself, and that's NATO. Why? Because behind NATO, there is the United States, and that's the deterrent power for any kind of... So this is, if you're talking about security for the countries that have been emerging from the Soviet fold, NATO was the only game in town. Then, for politics and democracy and institution, nation-state is the foundation. That is the framework within which you think. And what is EU for? Well, it is essentially a market, an, an economic tool, a framework with all the legal norms that are associated with a well-functioning market. It's a tool of modernization, of course, because through the transfer of funds, the so-called structure of funds, you help to modernize uh, 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 countries that are uh, let's say, at a less developed state. So that was the vision. There was, a, I would almost say, a very British vision of EU in East Central Europe. And I'm generalizing because you will always find exceptions. People like Havel or people like Geremek always had a political vision of Europe as well. But let's say that was the dominant view of most of the governments that have been in charge. That view, that view of Europe has also found its limits. Uh, because suddenly uh, uh, you discover after Brexit that the British view of Europe is not necessarily the most uh, relevant uh, for, for today. And also you discover that the EU is, a, uh, is not just an economic space. It's a political project. And if you want to help Ukraine, for instance... Well, you cannot ignore the fact that the Ukrainians are demanding to be close to, to the EU. And they're doing that at war for political reasons. They're not doing that just uh, to get some subsidies for economic reasons. No, they're doing that politically. They want a political anchor in the West. That is what for the Ukrainians EU means. So even the Central Europeans who had this I call it the British view uh, uh, of, of the EU, uh, have to revise. And so each of them is revising it differently, of course. The Czechs, the, the Slovaks. Uh, I, I listened yesterday to the podcast of the discussion between the uh, Czech and the Slovak presidents, you know, the new Czech president meeting with Chaputova, the Slovak president, that they had a conversation about Central Europe, about Europe, about Ukraine, of course. So that kind of discussion is different from, let's say, the discussion you would have uh, 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 with, a, with, a, with a Polish uh, government or with a Hungarian government, of course. So I'm making general statements, but then one would have to qualify. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, uh, I'm curious what you think about this concept of strategic autonomy. Because on one hand, what you're saying is that European Union has to become more 
geopolitically conscious, so to speak. But on the other hand, this war in Ukraine proved that Europe, Europeans still need Americans uh, supporting, well, in this case, Ukraine, and that we ourselves won't be able to sustain these efforts uh, for, for the Ukrainians. Do you think that it is possible that, and you know, a lot of people are criticizing Germany's, uh, for historical reasons, that Germany has a problem with the leadership. I'm kind of surprised that very few people uh, criticize French, uh, which is the only military uh, power in, in European Union right now, and always was uh, very strong uh, on geopolitical issues. How do you see this play out in the future? Do you think that would mean that Europeans will end up with more political integration, more geopolitical uh, vision? Or do you think that actually maybe America will be more present than we expected uh, five, six years ago? Well, I think that the, um, that the Ukrainian war has uh, altered some of the thinking or changed perhaps the way people think about those issues. Now, the French have had for a very long time this idea that you should develop a European capacity, a European strategic autonomy. Why? Because in the world of today, this is no longer uh, the world of 30 or 40 years ago. In the world of today, the crime, the main uh, 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 rivalry, competition um, of the future is between the US and China. The US has, uh, Obama had announced a pivot to Asia. Uh, Trump went even further on three occasions explicitly questioning the relevance of NATO. People already forgot that, but it's not that long ago. So uh, there was this idea, we cannot always rely on somebody else to fix our problems. We will have, you know, if there is a war in former Yugoslavia, like in the 90s, okay, it was eventually NATO and the US intervention together with its allies that helped to put an end to it, but there will not always be somebody else to fix the problems. So that was behind the French thinking. But, but there was the suspicion on the part of other Europeans that behind this French drive for strategic autonomy and, 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 and a European power, let's say, uh, uh, that there was an implicit taking over distance vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And, and therefore, any suggestion of strategic autonomy was a, let's say, a non-starter as soon as there was a suspicion. <laughs> the, so my conclusion from that is you cannot do strategic autonomy on your own. You have to persuade everybody that the only way to make strategic autonomy relevant, plausible, is to do it within the Atlantic Islands. So this idea of the European pillar, yes, you will still, of course, have America as your prime ally. You would still rely on the support from the United States, but you will not be always, always able to rely on America to fix the problems in Europe's neighborhoods. So if that is the case, then you try to build a European strategic thinking what we need is a common, is a shared strategic culture, a shared strategic, and that is not easy. Uh, beyond the question about what, how much the US and, and Europe, uh, uh, to what extent they are interconnected or will remain interconnected, uh, uh, there is also the, the question about where the threats are. Uh, 
where the main issues are. And that was one of the issues that was, let's say, an obstacle to the emergence of this shared strategic culture. Because, of course, if you ask somebody in Poland um, uh, or in the Baltic uh, countries, what is the main uh, security issues? Well, it's it's no brainer. You, uh, you knew that. You knew that uh, from your history, from your geography, and from the way Putin behaved. So uh, uh, if you ask somebody... Uh, in, uh, I'm not now talking during the war, let's say, if you take the situation five or ten years ago, you would ask somebody uh, in, in, in Italy, in Spain, uh, uh, or even in France, what is the main uh, threat? Well, they would, they would, they would certainly uh, say that uh, collapsing states on the southern shore of the Mediterranean, from Libya to Syria, with Iraq as a trigger, Iraq war was a trigger. And you have collapsing states, terrorist, you know, ISIS, terrorist movements, which actually hit Paris, you know, 150 deaths on a terrorist attack, migration wake, etc., etc. Demographic changes. So you have great instability on the southern periphery, which generates security threats of a new type, terrorism, migration waves, etc., etc. So we are now confronted with the Ukrainian war with a very classical threat. This is this is like uh, sometimes it looks like World War One. You know, people are in trenches and shooting at each other. So we we are confronted with two types of threats in two types of neighborhoods. And ten years ago, you would ask people and say, "Oh, the main threat is 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 the Islamist uh, arch of crisis, uh, let's say from uh, from Libya." all the way to Pakistan, let's say. <laughs> that is the main. And then you would ask uh, uh, somebody now, what is the main threat? Well, you know, the whole of Europe said, yeah, well, of course, uh, 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 it's, uh, it's Russia and its revisionist uh, uh, approach uh, uh, to, uh, to the European order and, and, its, and its aggression against Ukraine. So we have to reconcile if we if if we want to think one day of a possible European uh, uh, really uh, power in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, military force as well or military contribution within NATO, not somewhere else, no within NATO, but as a European, well, you would have to reconcile these different threat perceptions, and you will have to do both. It's not that you will say we will prepare for a trench war with Russia, which will which may take years, or we prepare simply for the next terrorist attack or a migration wave from the south. We have to do both. And, uh, and that's not easy. That's easier said than done. You, you mentioned that we should uh, try to find the common strategic culture, and I could not agree more. What I'm curious of is, do you think that I think in the past and even now, um, people in the Central Eastern Europe they feel inaction and not countering Russia enough. Why I think people in the West they fear escalation, and it's a question whether now because it's danger this from from Russia. It's not like in the in the Cold War. It's more asymmetric, right? I don't think that uh, people in Paris seriously could fear of Russian invasion. Why people in Warsaw certainly do fear Russian invasion. Do you think that now this common impulse might mean that uh, that we will see some like real initiatives on behalf of the European Union, maybe France, 
the, the President Macron was very active in, in, in his first term. I remember your also visit to Poland when he made this uh, speech. You were in part of the delegation, important part of the delegation. I, I, I think he kind of gave up these big reforms for now. And do you think that like this European moving forward is always moving in a sort of crisis? This is a big security crisis. Do you think there is now a chance for a leap forward or it's going to be muddling through and maybe we'll see some results in eight, ten years' time? Well, I, first of all, I'm, I think we're already seeing some results. You know, I, I don't think Putin imagined that Europeans would remain as united as they have been uh, uh, in, in the first year of this conflict. And... Uh, I mean, just under the French presidency, sixth round of sanctions against Russia. Then you had the uh, uh, Czech presidency, another three rounds of sanctions. Now we have Swedish, another round of sanctions is in, in, in the offing. So Europeans have remained, despite the differences which we, of course, are aware of, they've remained united in, in their response. They've also provided massive aid, each country differently, of course. I'm not saying that all of them did exactly the same thing. And even that is true today. I mean, Poland has just announced it will provide planes to uh, to Ukraine. Well, you know, that, that is not something others are perhaps ready to do. Uh, so there are differences. I'm not ignoring them. But I'm rather impressed that on the whole, Europeans have held their ground and their view of the conflict have converged. In a way, uh, those who at the beginning were so fearful of escalation, including possible nuclear escalation, because in the case of Russia, we have to take that into account and we have to take it into account because they had repeatedly, at least last spring, they were using this argument, that not so much now, but they were using it. And, uh, and they were, I remember they were even saying you could hit Berlin in 150 seconds, Paris in, in 230 seconds or something. I mean, it was, it, it was a, 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 this, kind of, uh, uh, this kind of rhetoric. So I think that first we uh, uh, Europeans have held their ground. They are perhaps divided. Okay, let, 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 let's, let's address the question, the, the most difficult one. They are maybe divided about the risk of... So it's not division about the support for Ukraine. The, the goals are shared. Everybody wants the Russians out of Ukraine. So the question is, avoid escalation, uh, uh, as you have uh, uh, mentioned, and uh, perhaps uh, try to imagine... Well, avoid being directly drawn into a conflict, I would put it that way. So this is where like providing planes or providing, how, how far do you go? And we have seen gradually the, uh, 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 the, the progression in the kind of support, military support that Ukraine is getting. And there will come a point where the divide between providing support and becoming actually involved, and this is, so the worry about getting involved is stronger in the West than in the East of Europe. Let, let's put it this way. This is uh, perhaps obvious to a Polish uh, 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 
uh, audience. But uh, and and I think that there are there are strong arguments on 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 both sides. I don't think one should underestimate the risks of uh, both, or the risk of escalation, or the risk of uh, uh, being drawn into a conflict. I mean, being drawn into a conflict would would be if you actually send, if you were to send troops, provide we are, we are providing uh, armaments, and I think that this is all of Europeans are on this on this line. There might be a question about how do we see the exit from this, and uh, there are those who say, um, ah, well, you know, there, there will be no end to this war until Russia is defeated, and in fact, uh, until the Putin regime is overthrown. So this is this is one line you hear. I mean, I've heard a number of. Uh, intelligent people uh, formulating this view, mainly in 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 Eastern Europe, in the Poland, in the Baltic countries, elsewhere. I also and and you would not hear uh, this kind of argument, let's say in Berlin or in Paris. You would not hear of kind of regime change as a, as a condition for having a deal. The one thing that you would hear is we should make a distinction between ceasefire and a peace deal. So nobody but the Ukrainians can negotiate a peace agreement. Okay? But there may be a situation where you may be uh, forced into a situ- uh, uh, into a position where a ceasefire seems like the best option. Why? Because I don't see the Ukrainian side collapsing, it has a support, it has a will to fight, and it has the support of the Western countries. I don't see, I may be wrong about that, I'm not a really strategic expert, I don't see the Russian side collapsing either. They are badly organized, poorly armed, I don't know what, there is a chaos, etc. But they have this constant capacity of to mobilize. This is a dictatorship, so they have coercive means to send people to the front. And uh, that the conclusion from that, we may be in for a long haul. And uh, there may come a point, this has been, that in a ceasefire, you make some, let's say, provisional concessions. And let's say West Europeans would be more easily perhaps ready to accept such concessions, let's say on Crimea, than uh, perhaps people in Poland or the Baltic country. Although I've heard in this discussion between the Czech president, the new Czech president, General Pavel. He's a NATO general, okay? He's he served in the NATO military command for 10 years. So he knows a thing or two, both about the military side and about NATO. Well, he actually said in that debate, he was cautious, but he says, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, only the Ukrainians can decide about uh, what they want, uh, kind of peace agreements. Huh? But, you know, there may come a point when both sides, depending on the level of their exhaustion, uh, will find necessary to make a, I don't know, he perhaps didn't call it ceasefire, but something like that. And as we know, ceasefires can sometimes last a long time. Take uh, uh, the, the Korean War, you know, 1953, they drew a ceasefire line and it's still there today. They don't have a peace, they have a ceasefire and it's armed peace. So uh, I'm not saying this is a scenario that, that is likely. I'm not, it's certainly not something that I would wish on anybody. But of course, then the conclusion is, if that, were the, if that were to be the case, what would the Europeans do about it? 
They can't tell the Ukrainians to do something, but they may help the Ukrainians to cope with a situation in which they are forced by the military situation. And the only compensation, I mean, I'm using compensation in inverted commas, for the Ukrainians to accept something that would be perhaps difficult on principle, because on principle, you want all your territory, including Crimea. But if you were to draw a ceasefire, well, the only compensation you have is Europe. And this is where, where we started about the European prospect suddenly takes relevance. Yes, uh, 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 maybe a certain situation will be created on the military side that will force into a ceasefire situation, which should not preclude the possibility, on the contrary, for Ukraine to be engaged in a major post-war reconstruction, transformation, and European integration. So this will be an entirely new form of European integration. It is the closest thing would be what we had in the Balkans after the war. But the Balkans after the war, they had to wait 20 years in the waiting room to get the train moving. Now that the because we made this signal to the Ukrainians about their European prospect, we couldn't do that without having the Balkan train moving. So the Balkan train is finally moving. I've never been invited to so many discussions or, 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 or conferences or meetings at the Foreign Office, etc., about uh, Balkans, because to be credible vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians, you must show that you're doing, that you are serious about the Balkans. So, yeah, it's an entirely new ball game. All the things that the French had in mind had not worked out. They thought some kind of security arrangement with Russia would be possible, uh, etc. That didn't work out. Uh, there, uh, the idea of how you do enlargement, that has not, <laughs> that is not feasible for a country that will be in the state that will be uh, Ukraine in a few years. So, from, let's say, a French perspective, you have to rethink, but perhaps the East Europeans have to rethink as well. That is, uh, that, 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 that suddenly they discover that the EU is not just a common market, that, it's a, that it has to be a political animal, and that if we are in it politically, and if we, we cannot simply use rhetorically the word, oh, we are fighting for values, for democratic values, for democratic principles against the dictatorship, well, that means observing the rule of law. That means we, it suddenly becomes uh, that if we are serious about what we are saying about the principles, the values, the institutions, the rule of law, well, we have to imply it, implement it ourselves. And my own take on this is that the future of the EU, as I see it, uh, with uh, uh, the possibility of an enlarged EU would be broadening the horizon eastward, Poland, of course, being a crucial country in this respect, not, like, as I read sometimes, has, has a center of gravity shifted? Uh, center of gravity. Of course, there is a war in the east. So if, if you're talking in terms of security terms or geopolitical terms, yeah, the center of gravity has, is shifting eastwards. But the institutions are in the West. So center, geopolitically, center gravity is shifting. East, the institutions are in the West. If the war, when the war ends, 
reconstruction will be the agenda, where is the, where is the economic and political clout to make that Marshall Plan for Ukraine, to, for European Marshall Plan for Ukraine? Well, it will be in the West. Because these are the countries who are the net contributors to the budget. It will not be uh, Romania, Bulgaria, or even Poland that will be doing it. So it will have to be France and Germany and Holland and a few others. who. Will. So let's not delude ourselves simply with rhetoric, but let's address the question. Center of gravity in terms of strategic thinking, yes. New situation, new challenges, new thinking. Yes, the countries of East Central Europe have a new role to play in this context. And I would see in, in a, in a post-war situation, a Poland that would drop its Eurosceptic rhetoric that of the present government, and I know that it is not shared by its opposition, and I think that perhaps the war itself has toned down the, the Eurosceptic rhetoric. I don't hear that often, Mr. Jobro saying, uh, Oh, Brussels is the new Moscow or something like that. You know, you, you, you couldn't say that because if you are saying Ukraine should get fast track into the EU, how could you say that <laughs> if you think EU, Brussels is the new Moscow? So you cannot wish on your best friend something as horrible as uh, EU and Brussels. So all this Eurosceptic rhetoric has been deflated by the war. And in the future, I could imagine that uh, if some political changes were to happen, we could see an emergence of a strategic axis of France, Germany, Poland, Paris, Berlin. The, the Weimar Triangle would be, let's say, a key political axis in Europe. That requires the French abandon any illusion about possible uh, security arrangement with Russia for the foreseeable future. Germans will have to take the Zeitenwende seriously, that it is really a change of time, and therefore they have to really, the, the whole post-war political culture has to change. And uh, Poland uh, pff, might have to, I don't know, perhaps change government. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I think, that I think could be a conclusion of our conversation. Let's hope that this. Let's hope that this war, the one war, uh, really created European Union. Let's hope that this war will will transform European Union and also will transform the Eurosceptics within the European Union. Professor Jack Rupnik, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, my pleasure. This is uh, all for today and the uh, Liberal Europe podcast. Uh, please tune in for Ricardo Silvas next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.